Hello, everybody. I'm Michael Rock. And I'm Brendan Collins, and welcome, Ball Stars, one and all, to the Balls Over the Top podcast. We're excited to have you here this week. Got a major week of sports to talk about. We're backlogged a little bit because I was out with uh, a little little injury day to day. Yeah, he was put on the... Uh... Oh, I, was, I almost I almost said disabled list. I remember they changed it. It's the injury list. Yes. It's almost on the injury list. Uh, but it was only like, you know, three days, undisclosed upper body. We're not going to go into details, but we're glad to have you back. I'm glad, glad you're here. I'm glad to be back, and I'm glad to be talking sports again because, man, world football's been rolling, so let's just jump right into it. Yeah, and, you know, real quick, also, we were delayed a few days because of pretty unprecedented snow here up in the Northeast, oh, yeah. so... We had to fight through the conditions even to get here tonight, so we're sorry for the delay this week. But yes, let's roll right on into world football, and we got some excitement brewing in the Premier League, and I gotta say, a few teams right now that you wouldn't expect are playing some pretty good football. Yeah, playing pretty well, but one team you do expect to be playing pretty well pretty much week in and week out is Man City, and they are at the top of the table with six straight wins. Yeah, I mean, they're a machine, right? They've just been chugging along. It, I don't know who's going to stop them right now. You know, Liverpool, it seems like the wheels have kind of fallen off the wagon a little bit. They suffered a big upset result today. But all of the top teams, we're seeing hiccups. We're seeing slip-ups. We're seeing, you know, Tottenham dropping points this week. Chelsea, it seems like, it was on a free fall to the point where they had to sack their manager midseason. Arsenal's just pretty much constantly a mess. And then even the other teams that were having pretty good seasons have been up and down. Your Aston Villas, your West Ham's, Leicester, you name it. But City, it seems, have just been on a tear. Yeah, and it seems like the back line bolstered by the new acquisition for this season, at least, Ruben Diaz, Portuguese center back, has been really holding his own on that back line and kind of giving it a whole new identity. Yeah, and what's been impressive is they've been finding ways to win even in the matches where they're coming out looking flat, right? Obviously, you know, last week they come out, they get the big fancy high-flying win against West Brom 5-0, never in question. But then over the weekend, they have a match against Sheffield United, bottom of the table, Sheffield United, and it and they only squeak out a 1-0 victory and, you know, although Gabriel Jesus scored early in the match, that game did not feel locked away until the ref blew the final whistle. And yet you see time and time again, they do what they need to do to get the result. And it's not just in the domestic league. They're also getting results in the cup. I mean, we just saw them knock off Manchester United. Yeah, it's been quite impressive. What's also been quite impressive so far, the, or these past couple weeks at least, West Ham's won five of their last six, kind of coming out of nowhere after having a very kind of lackluster, weird, almost lacking an identity type start. Yeah, they were just kind of lingering. I mean, lower half of the table. When you saw other teams that had started out there really overperforming, again, teams like Everton and Aston Villa come to mind, had phenomenal starts to the season. And both of them are still holding really well in the table. I mean, overall, it's been, it was a disappointing start, but now, of course, we see this surge. We see them all the way up in fifth place at this point, and really two points away from taking over from the defending champions and moving into a European football spot, which is remarkable. Remarkable. 
They got the win today off the freshly loaned player and Jesse Lingard getting loaned out to West Ham and already making an impact. Do you think he's going to continue to have this kind of impact? Is this what West Ham needed to push them? It's funny you say this because I don't know if I'll be able to answer the question in that capacity. Is this what West Ham needed? I'm not sure because, you know, they've won, they've been on a tear Mm -hmm. until this point. They've been really in great form. And I have looked at this trade from the opposite end, not trade, transfer. But when you look at Lingard's career, he was just kind of slumming on the bench at United. And whenever he was on the pitch, he was getting outplayed by those around him. And it's not like you could point to him and go, oh, it's inexperience. I mean, it, it is inexperience, but Mason Greenwood's younger. Marcus Rashford, I believe, is the same age or younger. Anthony Martial is only marginally older. You look, and, and they've all been able to thrive in that system, and they make more out of their opportunities than Lingard. And I was talking to this with a friend of mine who is a big United fan, and we were saying Lingard isn't really a United. He's not a big six starting 11 player. But what he is is the best one or two players on a mid to lower table team. It's kind of almost like a Jack Grealish. I mean, I think Jack Grealish is better than Jesse Lingard, but it's kind of like that mold. Like a the, Theo Walcott? The Theo Walcott, the Wilfred Zaha, the guy who thrives the Danny Ings that you know thrives as the main guy on that mid lower tier table team but then when they get to a big club the times that we do see those transfers get brought over Mm -hmm. we don't see the production because it's like they can't handle that week in week out they need to be kind of funneled through them yeah or can they yeah can they not withstand being outside of the focus of the team There's all sorts of different factors. I mean, obviously, it varies player to player. I think with Jesse Lingard, he's the type of guy who needs more touches. Like you're saying, he needs more touches. He needs to be featured a little bit more on the attacking side and have the minutes to be able to get into form, break down defenses, do what he wants to do. And with the lineup and the money that United have, he was not going to see that playtime. No, I mean, Bruno Fernandez is hardly coming off the pitch. And again, Rashford, Greenwood, Martial, yeah. Cavani. Yeah, Donny Van Beek. Exactly. Everybody. There's there's a list a mile long of people who would get playtime over Jesse Lingard. Yeah, and that so midfield's very crowded. I looked at this deal the second I saw it, and that was my approach. Wow, this is great for Jesse Lingard. Before he got loaned out, I was talking to my friend, and we were saying, hey, he's getting loaned out. It's probably going to be to a Premier League team, mid-low table. I was shocked to see it. Being a team like West Ham, who is directly competing with Manchester United for European football at the moment. It will be quite interesting to see. We talked a little bit about it, but we can continue to talk about it. Brighton has been on a little bit of a terror as well, terrorizing clubs who are used to being at the top of the table. Brighton winning 1-0 versus Tottenham and repeating that performance against Liverpool. Is Brighton a legit, decent team at this point, or have they just been able to put together two good defensive performances and we see a a return to, you know, the mean, a regression to the mean. I think inevitably we will see a regression to the mean. 
I mean, right now they're running a, a really nice streak. I mean, I know they're unbeaten in their last five. And so I think they've proven that they are a Premier League side. But I think in general, I mean, the last few weeks they've slayed some giants, so to speak, in a major victory against Liverpool today, 1-0, and a major victory against Tottenham, 1-0. But notice, they're 1-0 victories. They are incredible defensive efforts, incredible swarming presses, and then capitalizing on whether it be a set piece, on a counterattack, whatever it may be. And and yes, it's admirable. You you want to take your hat off to them getting those results against clubs with you know, payrolls that dwarf theirs. And yet, I'm not going to sit here and say that they're going to be competing for European football or making much noise next year. Like, I, I think there would be still multiple years away from being able to put together even a run like a Leicester, which catapulted them into the top tier, you know, the upper half of the table. I think Brighton remains a lower mid part of the table, you know, looks like for now they're going to be able to avoid relegation but even after these results keep in mind even after this impressive run of form they're still sitting in 15th place yeah and that's true but they have been on a pretty much continuing upward trajectory since they've made it into the premier league they've had a couple of good transfers that have gone their way they've been pretty smart with what money they do spend i wouldn't be surprised to see them creep up as a bigger team in the Premier League, but I don't think it happens this season. I think it's it's going to be something that we'll have to build over, you know, consecutive seasons. We saw a couple of red cards this week, and one was definitely fair in the Southampton game, that second-minute red card for a very high tackle from the, the young 19-year-old midfielder. His name escapes me at the moment. But we also saw one for David Luiz for Arsenal that was not as clear-cut of a red card, and it's, it's, inter- it's interesting to me how VAR getting implemented into the league isn't being used for these red card scenarios or is getting used for these red card scenarios, and it seems like it's punishing players further. Well, we know that the Premier League and the FA, it's not just the Premier League, but, well, no, it, it is just the Premier League, actually, have a problem with the VAR. And, I mean, it's not just them. It's all of Europe, but... This is new technology. I, I do think it's for the better. I think that VAR has a place in the game and should stay in the game. But there needs to be a level of consistency and a precedent that's set that becomes less subjective and more objective. Mm-hmm. We need there to be consistency. Yeah. And there hasn't been. No. We see offside calls for various parts of the shoulder or whatever. Sometimes get called, sometimes not. We see handballs, whether it be direct handballs or indirect handballs, getting called with varying frequency and consistency. And then even we see issues where you slow it down and you see the foul was either worse than it seemed or wasn't as bad as it seemed, and yet they don't take appropriate action. And so I think that's what the fans want. I mean, obviously, there's in the moment, there's the side that benefits from a call and the side that are the victims or whatever of a call or, or you know, mm-hmm. are hurt by it. But overall, fans just want it to be right. They want the right call. And within reason, though, I think zooming into megapixels and having to, you know, seeing 
oh, the ball glanced off the guy's finger on the way by, and it really had no impact on. Yeah, as he was jumping and spinning around, and it was kind of part of his arm was tucked to his body, but the other was exactly like, a 30 like there's degree so angle. many. V- I understand every situation is unique, but just call it with the same consistency, and I think the uproar would go away. Yeah, I think it would damper down quite a bit. We can move to the Bundesliga because in that Pokal game, Dortmund played Paderborn. I want to talk about it. VAR really hurt. Well, it didn't really hurt Dortmund, but it made him play a couple extra minutes. It was a big swing at the end of the game where Paslak had a potential handball in the box. Kicks it out, goes down the field. Erling Holland scores a goal. 3-1 is the result at the 94th minute. Goes to VAR instead. Paslak doesn't commit a handball, but instead they call a foul on him for his follow-through of trying to clear the ball. He's out. He gets he gets the penalty called against him. And then we move onward to overtime. Erling Holland scores in overtime. But VAR coming into the game at that moment, you have to question... Why can't they just go with the call on the field? You know, it was it wasn't it wasn't much of a foul. I don't think it was enough to overturn it since it wasn't called on the field. But again, is that the American influence of how so replays implemented? I wasn't I wasn't watching this game. Did it the referee go to the monitor? Mm-hmm. Okay, then I feel less bad about it if the guy who made the call on the field then goes and has a fresh look at it, not you know from a different angle. Mm-hmm. I feel worse about it when. They just immediately, no questions asked, side with the little radio in their ear, like, oh, I go, time to change the call. Yeah. I mean, I understand, obviously, it was still a frustrating situation, and that was a questionable application of VAR. But, you know, you see these have real consequences on the game. I mean, that that one especially, in stoppage time, to go from disallowing one goal to awarding a penalty to the other team simultaneously— you know, it's almost it's like you referenced you made the other day. It's like a pick six. Yeah. You know, it, it it's, swings it all the way back in, in a whole different favor of the momentum. I mean, even, you know, we saw that kind of momentum switch, not to jump back to the Premier League, but, you know, in that Southampton United game, I granted a second-minute red card will do this to pretty much any team, but it led to the biggest score margin in Premier League history. United getting a 9-0 to victory over Southampton. I mean, these VAR calls were, like, it's unreal. And, and, like, in that moment, if I'm not mistaken, he called the penalty on the field. Yeah, he called a red card on the field. He didn't go to the, he didn't go to the monitor for that one. I think he went to the me- monitor for the Benaric red card later in the game where yeah. Southampton picked up an extra red card. But uh, still, it had its, its influence on the game. But going back to the... Bundesliga, we have seen some moves. I know you were just talking about the domestic cup there. In the league, we've seen some moves from some teams not named Dortmund kind of surging up the table. I track Frankfurt. Seems like they're in a good run of form. And, you know, we see them play in Europe. You know, I know last year they were in the Europa League. Mm-hmm. Do you think this run of form is going to keep them at the top of the table? Or do you think there's still it's not going to be enough to kind of crack that top four that seems pretty much held down right now by Dortmund, Bayern, Leipzig, and whether it be Gladbach or Leverkusen, I mean, the five of those teams are really, really playing well. Yeah, and Andre Silva's been one of the leading goal scorers 
in the Bundesliga playing for Frankfurt. I believe he's got 14 at the moment. But right now, there's really no one who's going to be able to catch up with Bayern at the top of the table. I mean, Red Bull Leipzig has the best chance, but they're seven points behind. And let's be honest, Bayern just doesn't drop many games. That's a lot of ground to climb up this late into the season. We're almost at the two-thirds point. I don't see anybody catching up, especially with how tough the top of the table is. I mean, we talked about McLaughlin, Wolfsburg, Frankfurt. Dortmund is starting to return to a little bit of form. Well, I didn't think anybody had the chance of catching Bayern. I was asking if you think Eintracht Frankfurt's going to find themselves playing in Europe next year, forcing out, like I said, I mean... If they're in Europe, that means either Dortmund, Leverkusen, Wolfsburg, or Gladbach are not. And right now, those teams have all been putting stake to a pretty good season. Yeah, they've all had very good seasons. Uh, the defensive effort from Wolfsburg has really come out and, and shown its force. McLaughlin has a very team system that's been working well. With the addition of Luka Jovic, I think Eintracht Frankfurt has a solid chance to stay in this Europa League contention, but it's going to be extremely tough. They have a brutal end-of-season schedule to get through, facing a lot of top clubs. It'll be interesting to see, but I wouldn't be surprised to see them hold on to that top spot, especially with the prolific goal scoring that they're getting as of late. Yeah, they do a match to keep an eye on. The end of this month, they are taking on Bayern Munich, so that will be a good one. I mean, they have a few matches between now and then, but that's going to be one to keep an eye on for oh, sure with the current form they've been in. So we can move on to the Serie A here, and it's been a crazy season. It has been. It's been wild. The top six of the Serie A have all had very strong campaigns so far, but have also had a few hiccups along the way. And it's led to a very, very close title race. Yeah, I mean, if it tells anything, nine points separating first through sixth place, ten points separating first through seventh. It is really unprecedented, at least, you know, we see that kind of competitiveness often in the Premier League. We see it often in Italy. But as far as the big five leagues go, I mean, those are really the only two that we see this level of really, really just tight-knit competition and so with so much clustered and really it's seeming like any week or maybe any month a different team could find itself up top do you think Juventus is going to continue their repeating or is this the year that they get knocked off the mountain I think it might be the year they get all knocked off the mountain I think AC Milan's going to be extremely tough to catch and with the way they just bowed out of the domestic cup and looking like Inter might get that piece of silverware possibly, I could definitely see either Inter or AC Milan holding on to one of these top two spots. Both of them have been in great runs of form. Both of them have been getting goal-scoring efforts from up and down the pitch. I don't know if, if Juve is going to be able to repeat like they've just been accustomed to year after year. Yeah, I mean, they've definitely had their hands full this year, and... It's going to be interesting to see how this season wraps up, but with Cristiano Ronaldo on the side and him really seeming to run into form, I mean, he had a brace in the first half this past week against Inter Milan in that domestic cup. The first leg, it's a two-leg at this point. The first leg, he had a brace, final score being 2-1 to one in that, by the way, for anybody who wants to follow. That's going to be a fun second leg to watch. Oh, but sure. seeing Juventus starting to round into form, Ronaldo starting to play better, you know, McKinney's playing really well. They're getting... 
a lot of production out of Alvaro, Alvaro Morata. It's not shocking to think that they could come through and win it. I'm hoping that either of the Milan teams are able to fend them off. I like both Milan teams. Zlatan and his resurgence with AC Milan this year has been so much fun to watch. And then Antonio Conte and all the boys over at Inter Milan are just great Oh, it's class great on players. Grass. Exactly. Great, great players, great tactics, tons of fun to watch. A lot of guys who we've been watching either in the Premier League or elsewhere for years and years. And I'm really hopeful that one of those two is able to be crowned this year. Another team worth keeping an eye on right now, at least in that top six, is Lazio, who just a few weeks ago were on the outside looking in. Really, a lot of question marks. They had their big COVID outbreak. They were mid-table. But now they've been undefeated in their last five. Actually, not even undefeated, but they've won five in a row. And so they've just surged up the table, and they, they find themselves now within striking distance along with all of the other major clubs. But, you know, this was a season that was looking lost, and now suddenly they're maybe the hottest team in the best form out of that very tightly contested league. Do you think they're going to be playing in the Champions League next year? It doesn't have to be long-winded, just just yes or no. You think they squeak into the Champions League? I doubt it. Yeah, you don't think they're able to? Just, uh, they'd have to climb over who's Juve and both Milan teams. I think that's a very tall order for... Well, remember, you just need to be top four to be in the Champions League, so... I, I know, but it's, it's... They're only in sixth right now. I know, but it's t- it's tough... I, if they could get the points to get up to that top, I think, you know, that would that would be very impressive, and I think that would really prove me wrong. But I don't I don't see them getting past all of the top six. Yeah, I mean, right now they'd have to pass Napoli. They're only you know Atalanta's only a point behind them. Roma's ahead of them by a game. So definitely see your concerns there. I do think they're going to be able to pull it off though. I I think they end up in the Champions League next year. I think. We see Juventus or one of the Milan teams out. I don't know which one it's going to be, but I think one of those three teams is going to run out of gas and find themselves outside of the top four. Interesting. It's definitely a possibility. No longer on the outside looking in, Atletico and Barcelona sit at the top of the table of La Liga, both riding multi-game win streaks. Barcelona's at five and... Atletico Madrid is at four, with the one game being canceled for a COVID outbreak. This is, a, this is an impressive return to form for Barcelona, who had many struggles at the beginning of the season. But do you think this is sustainable? I think that results will tend to revert back to the mean eventually. And so we should have expected this, and it's not shouldn't be crazy to think that Messi, and I mean, even though he's been missing certain games for suspension, but... Messi and Barcelona, with their payroll, with the talent they have, with the academy that they have, would be back at the top of a all not that impressive La Liga. Yeah. It's just not that shocking to me. I don't think they're passing Atletico, and Atletico is a full 10 points ahead of them right now with a game in hand. So I, I think Atletico, this is Atletico's title to lose. Atletico has been the far more impressive team. They've been winning games convincingly, where Barcelona, it seems like, have been squeaking out wins of late. Again, I'm not shocked they're back at the top of the mountain where they belong. But I think this is going to be a year that the little brother, Atletico Madrid, is able to 
take a title away from the two big boys. It wouldn't be too surprising, especially considering where Barcelona is at right now. I mean, they've had headache after headache with a bunch of pain coming from Ronald Koeman dealing with messy transfer talks, a lot of that coming out of PSG. The details of Messi's contract were leaked by, they believe, maybe the ex-president or someone else on the team discuss, you know, discussing all of his incentives and stuff. And Barcelona's also coming into a lot of financial trouble. It seems like they might have trouble maintaining this level of dominance over La Liga. And it seems like it could be possible that their run of dominance and and class of over the league might be running a little dry as much as that seems like a possibility to me it just seems like a club with too much talent too much legacy too much fanhood and following to fail and maybe they'll have one or two off years but especially when everything opens back up and you know they have one of the biggest stadiums in the world they're going to be printing money again and bringing in the biggest names and the biggest stars and throwing that cash around as they like to do. But enough about the leagues. I know we peppered a couple names around here and there in our updates, but we also saw the transfer deadline day for the January transfer come and go. And gotta say, it was pretty underwhelming. I mean, I know we had a couple of decent names and we'll get to those in just a moment, but Overall, I don't know whether it's COVID, I don't, you know, and the money fallout that's still trickling down through that and still hitting the clubs where it hurts, or maybe it's just the obscured scheduling and the rush of games and everything going on, but it seems like we did not see anywhere near as much movement as we tend to. No, it was a relatively quiet window. I think one of the biggest names we saw is Real Madrid loaned out Martin Odegaard to Arsenal. Yet the young budding superstar is going to be, in theory, getting some playtime in an Arsenal side that has been struggling. But, you know, this raises a lot more questions to me than answers. Odegaard has been one of the best young players in La Liga over the last few years. And if I were Real, I would have been trying to loan him out in the preseason if I didn't think he was going to get the playtime. I don't know if he cracks that lineup at Arsenal. If he does, it seems like a poor decision for Mikel Arteta to be clogging up their midfield with an attacking player who, yes, might provide a spark, but on the same token, isn't helping your backlog and lack of development that currently exists. I mean, yes, there is the hole for Mesut Ozil, but remember, he was playing with the U18s. He wasn't even getting starting time. But that does bring me to a good point. Mesut Ozil was also on the move. The Premier League's highest paid player, if I'm not mistaken. He's highest or third highest. It's him and Gareth Bale are first and third. I don't remember who's who. Mm-hmm. For a long time, he was the highest paid paid player. Yeah, I think just Bale coming in bumped his salary down a little bit. Regardless, we see Mesut Ozil moving to Turkey. As we've seen in the past, they brought in big names like Wesley Schneider and Didier Drogba to Galatasaray, the Turkish capital. And so it should be an exciting opportunity for him. Mesut Ozil's been really barred from the starting 11 for a little I'm while. sorry. I wrote that totally wrong in the treatment. He didn't go to Galatasaray. He went to Fibonacci. That sounds correct. Yes, 
So yeah, scratch what I just say if we want to. Why don't we just edit that? Yeah, we leave it in because I fucked up. That's my bad. Alrighty. Well, that wasn't the only moves we saw. No, not at all. Ozan Kabak goes to Liverpool for 275 mil. The young center back leaving Schalke and the <laughs> smoldering crater that that side is to join a Liverpool side where he quickly becomes the best healthy center back. Well, it was a necessity signing for Liverpool here. I mean, seeing the injuries pile up on that side of the ball. He fills a massive hole and immediately upgrades that side. A couple of smaller name players on the move. We saw Sansone going to Aston Villa, Joshua King moving over to Everton, and Tamori got loaned from Chelsea to AC Milan. Andrea Milic also was on the move. Yeah, he leaves that Napoli side to go to Marseille in France. And lastly, we had two pretty big moves involving the Serie A. The first one is Roma brought back El Sharawi, which the young Italian flareful winger had has pretty much moved. Seems like he's always on the move. Yeah, he hasn't really found a home and hasn't really found a system that's fully worked around him. I mean, obviously a player that's full of talent, but still hasn't been able to put together continued impressive performances. Yeah, I mean, he reminds me of one of those players. I hear this about St. Maximin on Newcastle as well, where it's like they are so almost volatile that it becomes difficult for a manager to incorporate them because they pretty much don't follow any direction. Like, you tell them to go one way, but if they think that they can do it another way better, they're just going to do that, which, by the way, there are plenty of players that earned that creative independence there, but... It has to be earned. Exactly, and these guys are usually playing in systems that don't cater to that as much where you know a team like Barcelona or, or with superstars it can kind of almost be like isolate and let the superstar do his thing but when your whole system is based around not superstars but teamwork and being in the right place and spreading out the team and balancing and being you know defensive responsibilities and shifts and all these different things it's like a good pressing and exactly then a lot of times those players don't tend to ever find their spot You know, they're not good at being cogs in a machine. And the last player on the move that I wanted to bring up is Papu Gomez. The lifelong Atalanta player is now on the move to Sevilla. Yeah, and he goes for a really cheap price tag of only a little over $6 It's crazy to think that there weren't more buyers in that market. I mean, Papu Gomez has been an impressive attacker for quite some time and he's continued his form into this season and he's led his teams into european contests i'm surprised that the fallout seemed to hurt his stock in in the transfer market a little bit yep i also did misspeak he wasn't lifelong at atalanta but that's the only big five league that he has played in so uh, before that he came from argentina And I will say, I agree with you there. His price tag is shockingly small. This is a player that you would think could command the type of return that a guy like, you know, Cavani, Van Persie, a lot of these older, impressive attackers get later in their career. Yes, they're not going to get the flashy money because of their age, but... But single digits? Exactly. It's it's surprising. I mean, it's like when we see all Blaise Matuidi go for really a embarrassingly low price from PSG to Juventus. But 
This move was forced by Papu. Big falling out with the manager after their Champions League loss. And pretty much put his foot down. Said he refused to ever play there again. The manager agreed. And so I think it became a desperation sale. They just wanted to move him before the deadline. And he also was digging his heels in. He wanted to play in Spain. He said he either wanted to stay in Italy or play in Spain. And so that creates issues. Obviously, a guy like Papu Gomez doesn't want to go to a non-contender in Spain. He's going to want to go to a major, major, you know, competitor in Spain. And that means getting the money right now could be tough. Real wasn't really spending. Barcelona wasn't really spending. Atletico did some spending, but already accomplished it and don't need what Papu provides. So Mm -hmm. I get why the situation ended up how it did. True. Let's move over stateside, though. We have the MLS, and there were a few players on the move from the MLS as well during that transfer window for Europe. Yeah, we saw big headline was Brian Reynolds from FC Dallas is going to be joining Roma on loan with an option to buy. Talented right back, impressed quite a bit this season, and it looks like he will have a shot at cracking that Roma lineup. Yeah, we also saw Paul Ariola on his way to Swansea. Joins Jordan Morris there, so that'll be an exciting link up there, and always love seeing representation with the Swans. I'm a big Swans fan, the Welsh side. Always love it when they can crack back up into the Premier League, and they're having a great year in the championship this year, so yeah. keep an eye on them. So bolstering that midfield and attacking force with some American influence might just help them. We also see Daryl Dyke going over to the second league in England, joining Barnsley FC on another season loan. Yeah, it's always great to see American order MLS talent represented over in Europe. And these English leagues, you know, you look at them, you don't be fooled by the fact that it is not top flight football. I assure you, the championship in England, even the second division in England, are made up with players that would be starting on virtually every MLS roster. So this is this is a step up for these players' careers, not a step back. Absolutely, and it's all young guys who have improved or improved and impressed early in their MLS careers and getting these chances overseas. It's exciting to see. Yeah, and it makes sense because there's a chance that they might not have those chances to be getting the playtime in over here this year. Yes, it looks like a possible lockout being flexed by the MLS is burgeoning. Players Association has come to the table. They've yeah, they've negotiated in good faith. We've seen an effort where they've brought negotiations back to the MLS league itself, but the owners seem to be holding pretty firm. I know they've taken tremendous losses, but players have offered pretty nice deal. A lot of salary cap freezes up until 2026. It'll be tough, but if we see the lockout happen, we know MLS owners will be to blame, and that could be very bad for the health of the league. So it'll be something that we keep an eye on. Deadline is tomorrow, but we'll see what tomorrow brings. They might push it again. They already pushed it once. But let's jump over to a league that's really heating up in the action, and it's not because of players with fevers. Yeah, the NBA, it seems, has gotten things relatively under control after a pretty hectic couple of weeks. Major outbreaks in teams like the Miami Heat, 
the Washington Wizards, the Memphis Grizzlies, were putting big black marks on the season and causing dozens of postponements and reschedulings. And yet this week, they laid a solid zero burger. No new positive tests in the last week. They will hopefully be getting things back on normal and make this a trend, but we'll see. Let's hope that wasn't the anomaly. Yeah, and I know the new guidelines were thought to be a little bit totalitarian, but if they're working and they keep the season moving at the pace that it's going now with you know no new positive tests, I think it'll be something that we all look back on and find worthwhile. I also want to say... NBA players in general have, for many years, have made it fairly obvious that they don't care that much about the regular season. So these players, obviously they want to play. I'm not implying that they would be reckless with their health. But getting on a big soapbox and beating their chests over the fact that, you know, one of their games, they only were allowed to have eight guys suit up because of contact tracing. In the grand scheme, the teams that are going to deserve to make the playoffs are going to make the playoffs. The teams that aren't won't. And that's why they had the talks of bringing back the play-in tournament. Mm-hmm. We, we'll see how that goes. But right now, we can talk about the East, and we love to talk about it because Sixers are first. Yeah, we won't have to deal with a play-in tournament, which is great. The Sixers right now holding down the top spot in the Eastern Conference. Boy, that feels nice to say, and, you know, it's starting to make me think. I almost just said that Brett Brown was the problem, but that would almost be a little bit cruel. The fact that we were able to upgrade to Doc Rivers and bring in some of the outside shooting help that allows us to space the floor the way we have is a major factor. And in general, comparing Doc Rivers to anybody, unless you're a Hall of Fame caliber NBA coach, is a pretty unfair results comparison to be making. We also brought in Daryl Morey, who made some of those deals, so credit also has to go to Daryl Morey playing debt together a team that looks like it has some pretty solid legs leading the bucks brooklyn and boston in that order who do you think has the best chance to make up the ground on the sixers with the sixers current lead in the number one spot well i'll tell you this is a tough one and it's between the two and three teams right now the bucks and the brooklyn nets are the two teams to me that seemed like they would be the biggest threat to the Sixers, not only to maybe take that top seed, but possibly be the Eastern Conference champions representing us in the NBA Finals. I'm not saying I think that's going to happen. I mean, the Sixers are beasts of, of a team, and obviously if they get to play at home where they're one of the best home field you know, or home court advantages mm-hmm. in all of the NBA, even, even during lockdown, they've still had an tremendously lopsided victory uh, you know win-loss record at home compared to on the road but right now i think it's the brooklyn nets that pose the biggest threat yes the bucks have the two-time reigning mvp yes they had the best record in basketball the last couple of years however with that new big three in brooklyn they you can't help but look at them as a threat james harden going to the nets kevin durant Kyrie Irving finally back on the court, and they are looking like a team that can really go far this year. Maybe they won't. I know we've talked about a lot of times bringing all those superstars together. The first year, you're not getting immediate results. But I'm telling you, if you're playing, if you were to say to me, hey, we're about to go play a full game, Nets versus Sixers, I'm, that's the team that makes me sweat the most. Yeah. I mean, Kevin Durant, James Hart, Kyrie Irving. <clears throat> 
All three of them can take over a game. Any one of them can dominate a game from start to finish. I mean, we've seen each one of them put up 40-point games in their sleep, you know? And so we, we have this team just made up these incredible players, and in theory, the more that they play together, the better chemistry they're going to develop. And that's why, to me, they're the biggest threat to make up ground and pass the Sixers in this Eastern Conference. I think we're going to have to take a look at the Bucks. The Bucks had a COVID outbreak early. They've seemed to have gotten past it, and their form has improved. I wouldn't be surprised to see the Bucks take that number one spot back, but man, it's going to be a, a dogfight in the whole top four because Boston's no joke either with the steps forward that Marcus Smart has taken this season. It's going to be a very tough East Eastern division, especially in those top four spots. Looking over at the West, the Jazz were on an 11-game win streak, and they remain the leader in the West, having one game in hand over the Clippers and the Lakers, who also have 16 wins but have one more loss. Did Do you expect the Jazz to continue to be one of the top teams in the West, or do you think there will be a regression to the mean and we see teams like Denver overtake them? I'm inclined to say we see a regression to the mean here. Teams like both L.A. teams, Denver being really the three that come to mind. But even, you know, I was going to say Portland. I know they're struggling a little bit, but, you know, Dame Lillard usually turns things around. They're going to be tough. They're going to be tough. And not to mention even a team like Golden State finally getting their act together. I mean, yes, I think Denver right now, or not Denver, Utah is a better team than Golden State with, with the Clay Thompson injury and all that stuff. Well, and, and they also lose Wiseman. Wiseman. They lose Looney also. Yeah, but the Jazz are not top of a conference quality team. No. I, they just don't. You know, the Nuggets with Jokic and Murray, to me, seem like a more dominant top two than Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert. LeBron and Anthony Davis. Kawhi and Paul George. You know, I know this isn't a who has the best one-two duo competition, but in a lot of ways the NBA kind of feels that way sometimes. So I'm inclined to think the Jazz will fall off a little bit. A third or a fourth seed isn't unrealistic. I expect them in that three to six range where they tend to fall. Getting a first-round victory could be exciting. Potentially even a second-round victory, maybe. But I don't think they're conference champions, and I don't think they're going to end up with any form of home court advantage being one of the top seeds. Seems doubtful. We saw an interesting interaction when the Lakers took on the Atlanta Hawks this past week. One of the few arenas in the NBA that's actually allowing fans, not only allowed fans, but allowed them courtside. Yeah. And let's say they wanted to be part of the action. I think, you know, maybe all this social distancing and lack of interaction has gotten people itching for it. Yeah. LeBron James got into a hollering match or a trash talk match with a woman and her husband who were sitting courtside in Atlanta. And the exchange ended with the couple being tossed, thrown out like it was a umpire and a mouthy manager. Yeah, yeah, it was. it's odd to see. And it's odd that people coming to NBA games and sitting courtside can't behave themselves and when they have that level of privilege to be able to attend the game. But... I don't know. The 60-year-old Botox man and his 25-year-old girlfriend mouthing off at courtside of a NBA game. It's it's funny that it's a headline, but I think it's only really a headline because they're one of very few fans in stadiums at all. 
Well, yeah, I mean, this really comes down to being on the Hawks, right? You shouldn't have fans in the stands. If you have fans in the stands, they shouldn't be sitting courtside. You have a whole arena to spread these, you know, 4,500 people maybe that you're allowing in the stadium in. Spread them out. Nobody should be close enough to even potentially, if they were screaming, if they were coughing, if they were yelling, if they were anything, mask or no mask, to be able to impact, infect one of these players, yeah. because, given the amount of issues that they've had so far. On top of that, the reason that they initially apparently got into their exchange was that the man wasn't wearing his mask, again, indicating that security wasn't doing a good job making sure that the spectators that were allowed in were following the protocols. It's just a egg all over their faces, they should feel like, because the Hawks organization, not even talking on the court right now, seems like they just dropped the ball here. Yeah, that's pretty disappointing to see. Also disappointed this week was Paul George, getting only one free throw in his most recent NBA matchup. Does Paul George have a point? Is it pretty hard for Paul George to only walk out of a game with one foul called against him? Yes and no, right? I think when players are slumping like this, you shouldn't be expecting fouls or free throws to bail you out. And yet, I think we see that a lot. You know, we saw the game. Joel Embiid had a game with no points. Remember that? He had a zero-point game. Unreal. That kind of thing can happen. Now, I understand his concern. You see a guy like James Harden, a guy like Joel Embiid, capable of earning, you know, 10, 12 free throws a game. And then he feels like he's not getting any. But it depends on your style of play. He plays a lot of pull-up iso basketball. Likes to pop those jump shots. If you're not driving the lane, if you're not going in for the contact, if you're not playing dirty basketball, you're probably not getting that contact. You're probably not getting those calls. And so I think Paul George should kind of put his money where his mouth is. He should be able to ball out. Even if he's getting double fouled and hacked by people, Paul George should be able to ball out. He's Paul George. You're getting paid like it. You're supposed to be leading a team like it. Quit whining. That's how I feel. Yeah, and it's um, it was in the matchup against the Brooklyn Nets, but this isn't the first time Paul George has complained about officials. It feels like once a season he, you know, dusts up. Should Paul George, a power forward, probably draw more than one foul as he's going to the basket? Yes, but it seems pretty crazy to only get one free throw, especially considering there were... 26 for the other side in that game. Yeah. There is, there's there's questions to it that, that feel right, but to hear it from the player himself seems a little corny, seems a little out of whack. But let's take it off the hardwood and move over to the ice. NHL action is back. Pretty much all teams are playing at the moment. Yeah, a couple of outbreaks, though. I mean, the NHL has been getting worse, not better. It feels like they're right in the middle of that slump that the NBA had to deal with, and the NFL. It seems like all of these leaks kind of need to deal with the trial by error before they realize how seriously they need to be taking things, and the NHL is no different. Right now, the Minnesota Wild are in the middle of an outbreak there. Jersey Devils are dealing with outbreaks. Yeah, so... I do not think this is the end of it. I think we'll see it pipe up in a several locker rooms here and there. Given the way that these divisions are isolated, it should allow most of the games to continue playing, but definitely poses some hurdles, some problems, and hopefully this is dealt with sooner rather than later. But I tell you, there are two teams this week that were able to solve big problems that were weighing on their minds 
two very disgruntled all-stars are on the move for one another. Pierre-Luc Dubois and Patrick Laine were swapped by the Winnipeg Jets and the Columbus Blue Jackets in a pretty unprecedented move. You know, I saw a bunch of hockey writers speculating on how great something like this would be, but it's very rarely that you see two all-stars, I mean, two young franchise blue chip quality players on the move and being on the move in general is a shock in the NHL. Usually teams lock that up in the way that teams have contract control over players. We tend to see not too much movement for play from, from these all-stars when they're young. Not only were they on the move, they were on the move for one another. Yeah. It's an interesting move. I mean, Pierre-Luc Dubois got benched in the days prior to this, playing only three minutes of ice time. And yeah. after that, getting yanked by John Tortorella. And Patrick Laine has had dozens of run-ins with management, coaching. Well, and that's the thing. Both of these players were very outspoken as being not really in line with their management. They were fairly outspoken as being not happy in the cities that they were playing in. And, you know, it's funny. It is, it is a goofy thing to think about because... You know, they were guys that said they were unhappy, one of them unhappy living in Columbus, Ohio, and the other one unhappy living in Winnipeg. Well, hate to break it to them, but you're pretty much, you know, trading... Currency. That's yeah. pretty much it. Yeah, like, you're... you're... You, oh, you want to play in one cold small market, or you want to play in the other cold small market? Yeah, so, you know, it's definitely going to be one that could have major implications. Obviously, the trajectory of these players' careers will now tell who is the real winner, and also if either of these teams are able to retain the services of either of these players will also have a big influence on it, but it's interesting to see. You know, these players will always be tied together now, kind of like how we saw Eli Manning and Philip Rivers. I mean, you know, when you see all-stars swapped for one another, kind of gives them a, uh, a link from that point moving forward. But I got to ask you, who do you think got the better end of this? I mean, who, or, or rather, even if you were a GM and you got to choose one of these two young all-stars, who are you picking? It's tough. I really think both teams actually made out pretty okay in this one. If I'm a GM, I think I'd be happier as the Columbus Blue Jackets GM nabbing Patrick Line. He's a prolific scorer. There are some efforts of or questions of his effort sometimes. Sometimes his defense is lacking. Pierre-Luc Dubois is an excellent two-way player. I think he'll have plenty of success in Winnipeg and wherever his career takes him, but Patrick Line's goal-scoring ability is something that's fairly rare amongst NHL players, and I think you got to be happy with that pickup. Absolutely. Now, a team that's going to be looking to make another pickup themselves is the Pittsburgh Penguins. But this one's not going to be on the ice, but rather behind the scenes. Jim Rutherford resigns as GM of the Penguins, citing personal reasons, but you got to wonder how this replacement process is going to work. This is a team that, you know, while they've had great success over the last decade, decade and a half, and pretty much the entire career of Sidney Crosby, it's a tricky job. A lot of aging all-stars, a lot of big contracts, a lot of egos to manage, and there's a lot of feelings that are going to be hurt here or there, depending on who decides to be kept, who gets money, who doesn't, and the fans are going to feel a lot of different ways about it. That's a job that's going to be tough. I, 
I don't think I'd want it. No, it's not an enviable position. Uh, you have to wonder if Jim Rutherford's personal reason was not wanting to deal with the headache that the upcoming off-seasons are going to hold for him with a very tight salary situation. I mean, they've paid their All-Stars pr- quite well. Their their core is aging. They don't have a ton of the, in the tank to replace what's going to be aging out and what they'll be losing out on. It looks pretty tough, but we saw another GM on the move. This one out from the press box and down behind the bench. Vegas GM Kelly McCrimmon goes behind the bench for the Las Vegas Golden Knights as the COVID-19 virus hits the coaching staff. Yeah, he fills in as the de facto head coach for the night. Got to be an interesting move for him. You know, stepping, taking one hat off and putting another one on. Seemed like the players rallied around him, though. Played a good game and was able to fill the role fairly successfully. But definitely a fun storyline there. It's always neat to see people stepping out of their comfort zone and into a new position. And speaking of people who stepped out of their comfort zone this year, Zdeno Chara, after many, many years in Boston, again, not quite a full career, but a full tenure for sure. Oh, yeah. Leaves Boston, comes to Washington to continue his career, but forgot something. Oh, yeah. A shipment of Zdeno Chara's extra long sticks was accidentally sent to the home of a New Jersey man. New Jersey man posting on Twitter a picture of the arriving sticks and asking the Washington Capitals organization, Hi, I think I have your package. It's always funny to see this little bit of fan interaction, especially because of COVID and fans not being able to be in the stadium. It's funny to see the fans interact on Twitter, even if it is just because of a a mix-up in the shipping process. Well, just imagine getting that at your front door and imagine the potential chewing out that whatever either intern or equipment manager or whoever was in charge of sending that package, oof, Oof. that's got to be a brutal one. But imagine getting like a 10-foot long package and opening them up and it's Zdeno Chara's sticks. Got to be a fun story. I'm sure he got a laugh out of it. Might have gotten some cool memorabilia or, you know. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe he got to keep one. Yeah. Who knows? Well, that'll bring us to some of our other little interesting stories, our oddball section here. And we're leading off with news that we're both quite excited about because EA, the god-awful company that makes all the sports games except for NBA 2K, is bringing back a longtime fan favorite, NCAA football. Yeah, this is going to be a ton of fun. I mean, it's the first one since, was it DeMar? DeMar 14. Denard Robinson? Yeah, Denard Robinson, the quarterback from Michigan. Michigan, and yeah, 2013, I guess, would have been the release on that, 2014 being the year on, on, the, the, cover. on the cover. And this definitely scratches a major itch. I mean, it is a shame, or maybe not a shame, but, you know, validation for all those people who kept those servers going all these years for the old game and obviously the interest has been there the appetite has been there they needed to deal with the legal tiptoeing that has been going on with athletes getting rights which by the way i'm all for but we're just excited to have this game back it'll be fun we love the process the scouting the 
all of it, the rivalries, the oh, little yeah. differences that they have just between that and Madden make that game so much fun. And it's definitely going to be something to look forward to this summer. Absolutely. We also saw Patrick Weed, Patrick Weed, Patrick Reed win the Farmers this past weekend, which, I mean, big deal for him. Gets to put that in bed gate behind him, you know. Yes. The controversy coming from him picking up a ball that was claimed to be embedded within his playgroup. No one saw it bounce, which means that it couldn't have, you know, if it bounces, then it doesn't count as embedded. Golf's weird. It's got weird rules about when he can pick up the ball and when he can touch it. But as far as the on-the-course officials go, he played it by the book. Some fans were upset. Some fans got their money back, especially in this gambling world that we live in with the legal sports gambling. Got some, uh, got their money back betting on this one. But Patrick Reed's coming out of this one, no harm, no foul. And putting the in-bed gate behind him, getting out of hot water and looking to continue a good run of form. Yeah, this is definitely something that he will be happy to, at least the controversy put behind him, but the trophy will relish in that for a while. But we will move on to another interesting thing. Women's tennis star Naomi Osaka, who's really one of the most dominant female tennis players in the world, especially as we're seeing Serena and Venus start their decline yeah, we start the next stage of their life, past tennis. Osaka's been just a budding star. I yeah, mean, a young phenom who's just continued to get better and be more impressive. Not to mention a total class act really has used her platform for bringing attention to noble causes. And here she looks like she's using her platform for something else. She invested in the North Carolina Courage of the National Women's Soccer League. The NWSL is a growing entity and something that still helps strive toward meeting that financial gap for a lot of the female athletes, especially in a country that produces such prolific female soccer players. It is exciting to see big-name athletes from outside of the soccer world stepping up and helping to create a more viable, profitable, just healthy machine for women's sports here in the U.S. Yeah, and it's it's good to see a young, prolific female figure bolstering all female sports. It's exciting to see. What was also exciting to see was in the in the past couple of weeks or so, Dustin Poirier beat Conor McGregor. It was a big fight, fight of the night. Yeah, we feel like we're coming at you couple weeks late with this if you have a twitter or any form of social media yeah. you definitely know what we're talking about but regardless it was a great fight we wanted to put our two cents in on it obviously mcgregor a household name showboat you know comes in big money behind him big attitude and ego behind him as yeah. always an even money fight on the lines and he got whooped he did dustin poirier well dustin poirier kicked the crap out of Conor McGregor's legs and the fight went long and right now Dustin Poirier's cardio and his ability to what well, didn't go that long himself. remember it went a good 30 seconds into round two so it, it lasted more than one round which I guess McGregor always wants that flashy really quick KO and by the way he almost got it I mean up until 20 seconds before the knockout I, I say he got whooped because he he, he ate just a whole bunch a whole it, bunch of iron yeah. but you know, he was winning the fight prior to that, it seemed. I mean, yes, he absorbed the leg kicks, which we wouldn't know the impact 
of those until after the fight. But if you had asked me, if you had paused the fight 20 seconds before the knockout, just paused it, and turned to me and said, Michael, wow, so you've seen the first, well, it ended up being 98% of the fight, but, you know, you've seen the first, you know, five minutes and 40 seconds of the fight. What are your thoughts so far? I would have been like, oh, McGregor's going to probably put him to sleep, you know, put him down this round. Maybe it'll go to the third. Well, you know, had me eaten my words, it just immediately, Poirier turned things on his head, seemed like smacked McGregor a couple times, dazed him, and then smelled that blood and attacked. And finished. And it'll be interesting to see where mixed martial arts goes from here and the UFC go from here, hoping to see maybe Dustin Poirier get another big fight. Sticking with MMA a little bit, Ben Askren, after retiring from his UFC fighting career, is going to step into the boxing ring with Jake Paul. But I don't want to talk about Jake Paul anymore. So we're going to move to baseball instead. And we can headline baseball with the exciting news. Phillies make some re-signings. Yeah, the Phillies finally did the right thing and bring back JT Realmuto. Huge deal for them cornerstone of their baseball team really their all-star would be just tragic to have lost him especially considering what we gave up to acquire him that's major and then dd gregorius resigns this time on a two-year deal in line with that market value really this is good for dd because he was getting up there in age was hoping for a longer term commitment i know two years maybe not have been ideal for him but like it still gives him a couple years of stability especially considering next year we're going to have a historically good shortstop class free agency i mean there's a chance dd would have been the eighth or ninth best shortstop available next offseason which would not have fared well no not in trying to get a new contract for himself even though they didn't leave anywhere, they weren't the only big names that settled in this past week. Nolan Arenado, the all-star ex-MVP from the Colorado Rockies, on the move, traded to the St. Louis Cardinals for a bunch of nobodies. And on top of that, the bigger slap in the face is that the Rockies are, in addition to giving up Nolan Arenado, paying for $50 million of his contract. Yeah, I mean, Rockies, it has to be financial reasons, right? Or is it the fact that the player wants out and he just kind of got to get that value? I mean, he just resigned the past offseason. Yeah, and I know he said he wanted out, but he said he wanted out because they weren't producing around him. He said, listen, I don't want to stay here if you guys aren't going to surround me with talent and help bolster this team to help me win. And they said, well, we're not putting any, we're not adding talent now. We were concerned about our payroll as it is. He said, well, if you're that concerned about your pay, payroll, then why don't you trade me? Yeah. And they did. And then they're like, oh, no, we still have $15 million that we have to spend. Yeah, it's an interesting situation. Cardinals are the victors of this deal already. I mean, before he even touches the field, it seems that they're poised to get the benefit of this trade. Well, we saw another big name actually hang up the glove this week. Dustin Pedroia after a very long, successful career, called it quits this week. Yeah. He retires, and I got to say, he's going to be remembered fairly fondly, I imagine. Uh, I mean, Boston fans have to love him. Yeah, I mean, he ends up getting you know, getting the trophy there. And while he hasn't, wasn't like the most dominant, you know, 
in the league. Wasn't necessarily your household name in that sense. I mean, he was still a prominent player. I mean, solid hitter. He did get four All-Stars. He actually won an MVP, which seems like a lifetime ago, back in 2008. Mm-hmm. You know, was Rookie of the Year all the way back in 2007. So yeah. put together a really solid career. And again, one of those guys who stays with one team the whole time. Also, not to be overshadowed, four gold, four gold gloves, which... Yeah. And and he's also a player who you can appreciate. I mean, it, he wasn't the top prospect coming out of high school, wasn't the top prospect in, on anyone's radar, and far outperformed what the initial reports were on him, and hell of a career, and we're hoping the best for him in, in his next steps and what he, uh, what he plans to do next. Well, we also saw... Marcus Semyon on the move. He joins the Blue Jays, and got to say, they have had a very busy offseason, bringing in a lot of new players to build upon what was already a playoff season last year. I mean, remember, they snuck into that extended playoffs. And this is a team that I think is going to make some noise. I mean, are they going to be able to directly compete with the Yankees? I don't know, but also the Yankees have... Seems like our, you know, the Eagles of Major League Baseball in that they're just more injured players every year than anybody else. And so if that bad luck continues and the way that the Tampa Bay Rays sold out after their World Series run, we could very well see that Toronto team make up some serious ground and, and I think put together a pretty respectable season. Yeah, I mean, they've bolstered their bullpen they've added plenty of everyday players and a couple of players to come off the bench and help them it's been impressive we got some big names though still in free agency namely trevor bauer and marcel ozuna still haven't signed with a side now trevor bauer i'm not that surprised pitchers have that little added benefit of getting to sign later because you know their preseason camp tends to be a little bit lighter and just you know working on warming up for the season but Marcelo Zuna coming off that powerful bats of the Atlanta Braves I'm surprised there hasn't been you know well, more still smoke guys even him. like Justin Turner you know even hell Cody Bellinger you know it took that arbitration for him to finally sign I mean we've seen a lot of players even Gavin Lux also on the Dodgers still on from the Dodgers team that that championship team still unsigned there's a lot of baseball talent still in the market. And I feel like we see this, though. I mean, remember last year, it wasn't until the start of training camp that we saw a couple of those big-name free agents finally sign. I mean, those pitchers holding out, finally signing. So I think we keep an eye on it. We're going to see those dominoes start to fall. And, you know, the teams are trying to hold out and grab a bargain. I don't think these players want to be without a job come the start of the season. No. It will be interesting to see. But let's move on to the NFL. We got the big game coming up this weekend. We got to call it the big game because we don't want to get a strike against our very small, humble podcast. But it's exciting, and we've got plenty of news surrounding it. Sarah Thomas is going to be the first female official to be joining the staff for the upcoming Super Bowl. Yeah, that's really exciting. Obviously a big step for women coaching in the NFL. Really want to see this movement continue to move forward. I mean, she's not coaching, but, you know, 
women presence in the NFL. Obviously, there's also women coaches is what I was thinking about on both sidelines. I believe it'll be the first time that there were our female coaches on both sidelines in NFL history as well. Yeah. But there's an interesting aspect also going on because the Tampa Bay Buccaneers become the first team to ever be playing in their home stadium for the Super Bowl. And we found that there are going to be some limitations, such as they will not be allowed to fire off the cannons that they fire off in celebration for the Buccaneers when they score. I mean, I imagine this makes sense. You can't have any disproportionate beneficial things. I mean, think about it. If it were a normal independent Super Bowl, regardless of which team scores, you're firing off the same type of... Cannons, fireworks, whatever. You know, celebration. And so it makes total sense to me. But it is funny, you know, things that you probably would not have had to have thought of. Yeah, something that you wouldn't normally have to take into account. Something that you almost never take into account is going to get your hair cut by the teen barber and then halfway through he finds out he's positive for COVID and that happened to the Kansas City Chiefs Chiefs barber who was cutting 15 players hair he was a he was a team hired team barber yeah, yeah to to come in to obviously try and limit the spread not having these guys go to their own barbershop, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody was wearing masks. Well, talk about a backfire, right? Yeah. You have, you don't want your players to go get their hair cut at their own barbershops, so you bring in a guy who has COVID. Total fumble there. Hopefully we don't see any impact on the game itself. It doesn't have been any indications of that yet, but something to keep an eye on. We might see a couple positive tests popping up before the big game, and if that's the case... Ooh, big swing. Yeah, it could really impact the results on the field. And you got you would wonder if at that point the league would consider postponement. Yeah, I don't even know if That's you could crazy. this late, That's but hard. could you? Could you? If you found out Pat Mahomes or Tom Brady or again at the Chiefs, so what if it was Pat Mahomes and Travis Kelsey in the receiver group? You know what I mean? Yeah. That, that were getting their hair cut, or what if it was the whole offensive line? It, uh, the offensive line, the center was getting his hair cut. Mid, he was mid-cut. It was, it, it's crazy to think about. But, yeah, this is a story coming out this week. But everybody was wearing masks. Let's hope that, you know, that at least slowed the spread and we can get through this Super Bowl fairly healthy. Well, we will move on from the Super Bowl and talk about the next biggest NFL news of the week. And it was a big one. We saw Matthew Stafford of the Detroit Lions. Your favorite quarterback. <laughs> Don't even. Getting traded for Jared Goff of the Los Angeles Rams. And his first time in NFL history, we saw two number one overall picks being traded for one another. Yeah. And Los Angeles Rams also shipped over a couple draft picks uh, in this trade. I, I believe it was four. I think it's four. I think it was like two. It was a lot of draft picks. I know there was at least one first rounder in there. I don't remember if it was two first, two second. I know there's a third. I think I actually think it's three firsts and a third. Three firsts and a third. Either way, this is a huge blockbuster trade. It came seemingly out of nowhere, especially with names that have been on the quarterback market. I mean, Deshaun Watson formally put in a trade request. There have been rumors circling around Carson Wentz. There are plenty of teams who need quarterback help and don't have a solidified starter. To So to see Matt Stafford be kind of the first 
quarterback domino to fall and find a new team, and then Jared Goff also getting swept in that. I think it's pretty crazy to see. Now, coming out of this, though, who do you think the winners and the losers of this trade are? Well, I think the winners are clearing away the Detroit Lions, which it's going to surprise a lot of people. Everything I've been reading, the consensus has been like, oh, how great for the Rams. They they get their franchise quarterback. Sean McVay is going to be able to really build an offense now. But I've used Matt Stafford as the butt of jokes time and time and again. I do not think he is an elite NFL quarterback. I think he is serviceable. I think he is a serviceable NFL quarterback. But that is what you had in Jared Goff. So essentially, if I'm not mistaken here, you traded a 26-year-old serviceable quarterback and, by the way, correcting myself again, two first-round picks and a third. So you traded 26-year-old first overall pick quarterback, two first-rounders, and a third-round pick. For a 32-year-old For a 32-year-old quarterback. quarterback who maybe does certain things better than Jared Goff did, but overall... He's got more arm talent. But overall, still to me, falls into the serviceable, mediocre decent i just don't see how this was the move like like could you honestly look me dead in the face and tell me that matt stafford has been more impressive to you in the last few years than ryan fitzpatrick i couldn't and ryan fitzpatrick would be available for a third round pick yeah for a fraction of the price i think i think it was a ton to spend and i think maybe the rams overspent but what do we say is always the best ability of a quarterback? It's availability. Matt Stafford's tough. He can hang into a game, and he's coming into a system where the defense is going to bolster him up. This Rams defense We're, we're is- talking, though, about Jared Goff, who just played with a broken hand and won a playoff game. I mean, don't tell me it's toughness that has Jared Goff. It was... Granted, maybe, okay, if it's arm talent, that's one thing. But even then, I saw Jared Goff turn Cooper Cup and Robert Woods into top-tier NFL receivers from guys that were slot, borderline backups. You know, and, and you could argue maybe it's the offensive system. But I don't think I've ever watched the Rams play and been like, oh, Jared Goff's arm is the problem. I think you've raised the floor of your quarterback play. I think if you look at the worst days of Matt Stafford and you look at the worst days of Jared Goff, you're going to see more bad days from Jared Goff. And I think at the end of the day, the Rams are going to be pretty happy about this. But man, that was a fat price tag for a 32-year-old quarterback. Yeah, who's never won a playoff game. But we'll move on. We'll stay out in that NFC West division. And we saw the Seahawks dealt with a issue that... It's been a bit of a problem for the NFL over the past several years. Offensive tackle Chad Wheeler was charged with domestic violence after brutally, brutally beating his girlfriend, strangling her to the point of unconsciousness, and then when she regained consciousness, asking her how she was still alive. Uh, Really upsetting stuff. I mean, yes, he claims, he and she claim he was in the middle of a mental health episode. However, it was an incredibly disturbing story, and there is no place for this sort of domestic violence in society, let alone in the NFL. Yeah, I mean, now, just one point. He was a former Seahawks offensive tackle. He was out of contract, and that contract's not getting renewed now. But we hope 
we hope for his recovery. We hope that the NFL makes forward, like more aggressive advances at combating this seemingly systemic issue that they've had amongst players in the league. Yes. Not to also deal with technicalities, but I actually think he was still technically on the team because even though his contract is expiring, I think they last until the end of the league new year. Mm-hmm. And But the Seahawks proactively cut him. Right. So that's why I was saying it that way because I do know they came out and said, yeah, we're cutting him, even though cutting him was a moot point because his contract was set to expire yeah, it's not in like a couple of weeks. It doesn't even have cap implications. On a little bit of sad news, NFL royalty... Ownership, Patricia Rooney, wife of Art Rooney, passes away of, at age 88. I mean, the Rooney family is an absolute dynasty in football. They've brought that Steelers organization continued success. And it's, it's always sad to see such, you know, important figures of the NFL family depart. Yeah, we best wishes to the Rooney family, all of Steeler Nation. It's a sad time for them, but you know, also a happy time of reflection and remembrance. This is somebody who, if you look, I imagine in her lifetime and the time that she was involved with the franchise, saw immense growth, saw six Super Bowls, you know, just something where she could take great pride in what that organization started as and what it turned into today. And so definitely something where obviously best wishes you know it's somber talking about somebody passing but also a lot that she could take pride in and her family could take pride in and you know there's a lot of good sides to that story for sure speaking of a good side to the story eagles parted way with longtime offensive coach running back coach and eagles player deuce daly and he finds himself in a new position in the detroit lions coaching staff yeah i mean after what amounts to now more than 20 years of service with the philadelphia eagles deuce daly on the move we wish him nothing but the best city of philadelphia wishes him nothing but the best and vice versa deuce took out a very nice ad thanking philadelphia and the eagles organization for the years of dedication to him and support of him. And, you know, we're going to miss having Deuce on the sidelines and here in Philly, but hopefully he can contribute to turning around that what seems to be fundamentally broken run game in Detroit that hasn't hasn't really looked good since Barry Sanders left. Yeah, but they got to go. They've got a great coach now, so I think we can expect to see a improved running back room from the, the Detroit Lions. Well, everybody, I think it's that time of the day. As happens in every great day of sports, it's time for us to take our ball and go home. Yep. Hit the showers, everybody. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Balls Over the Top podcast. As always, you can find us on our socials at at B-O-T-T podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. And this podcast is available everywhere podcasts are available. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. If you want to find us on a podcasting site, we're there. Yeah, and if you could, if it's available, depending on your platform, smash that like or subscribe or even just throw the link up and share it with some friends. We really appreciate it, guys. We do. Thanks. Thanks.